Well, good morning. I, uh, I wonder what you expect to get when you open the Bible. Um, as a, a young English evangelical, there's a few straightforward answers which kind of pop into my mind. I think uh, I expect to find the Word of God. Good answer, yeah, whatever that means. Uh, I, I expect to find instruction, maybe encouragement, maybe interesting stories from a long time ago. Uh, if I'm going to go further than just looking at the Bible and actually mull it over, I think I expect to be challenged. And particularly, possibly just because of who I am, I think I expect that challenge to take the form of criticism. Because I'm quite aware that in many ways, I just don't come up to the mark that the Bible gives. To be honest, those expectations aren't usually disappointed too badly, especially if you're looking at a New Testament letter. Because the authors here were generally writing to young, struggling churches with a whole array of problems ahead of them. They had the, the temptation of sin, old traditions re-emerging and eclipsing the gospel. They had persecution, false teaching. Most of the time, the authors of the letters are, are addressing those challenges, they're rebuking errors, and they're showing the young churches the correct approach. So that if you're a negative person like me, it's easy reading, because we tend to be good at seeing the flaws in ourselves and focusing on them. But... 1 Thessalonians comes to me, at least, as a, a bit of a surprise. One commentator described it as a book of unmingled sweetness. There's not a clear piece of criticism about the Thessalonian church in here. It's fantastic. Paul's definitely deeply concerned for this church, and there's huge challenges here for us. But he's writing to encourage and congratulate and strengthen. He's pleased with them. He's satisfied. In fact, he's overjoyed by what he sees in them. And the whole letter sings with that. So the question for us to ponder here isn't what's wrong with this church, and then by extension, what's wrong with me, but what is so good about this church that again and again, Paul describes how thankful he is to God for them. What is it that Paul is looking for in a church? And if we take him to be a good example, what is it that Jesus is looking for in a church? What's the hallmark of a church that's responding to the gospel in such a way that it fills him with joy? I'll take uh, Ken Giles' suggestion, and I'll phrase that question as, how do you make your pastor a happy man? It should pop up there now. Uh, Peter was quite excited by that. Uh, Paul, Paul is excited by this church. If you look at chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, they're, they're outstanding verses. They say, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. That is such a powerful statement. And I think that I would like to be the kind of Christian that evokes that joy in the people who have taught me the gospel, like Emily was saying. Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to be the kind of church that inspires that feeling in our leaders? And in Jesus when he comes? I think so. So how do you make your pastor a happy man? What is it about the Thessalonian church that makes Paul so chirpy? Well, as we've heard over the last few weeks, Paul was uh, only with these guys for a relatively short time. There was a strong response to the gospel, especially among the God-fearing Gentiles. But before long, Paul and his friends are driven out by Jews who oppose their gospel. And they actually follow them to the next town over, to Berea, and they chase Paul on from there. They drive him all the way on to Athens, miles away. And Paul's fear is that despite the way that Thessalonians have soaked up his teachings while he was there, 
When they saw him apparently abandon them after such a short time, when they saw him facing such persecution for things he had to say, might it not call his teachings into question? You could hardly blame them for thinking, if this guy loves us so much, like he seemed to while he was here, how come we get abandoned so quick? Or, if this guy's message is really from God, how come he's facing such intense opposition from the religious elite? And if we're not sure of that, do we actually want to face that opposition yet as well? Paul knew they'd be asking questions like that. He knew that there'd be confusion among them. He knew that there'd be a strong temptation to step back a little from the Gospel towards safer, orthodox Judaism. Essentially, he's worried that their faith won't hold, that their trust in the truths that they'd accepted would waver, and that rather than letting those truths decide their lives, they might slip back to letting their actions be dictated by the culture and the world around them. For them, that might mean dropping the emphasis on the things that distinguish Christians from Jews, maybe meeting for communion, or claiming that Jesus was actually the Christ and not just a a good human rabbi there'd be pressure for them to, accept, uh, to expect Gentile converts to be circumcised and to adhere to the old law. All the temptations which other churches at the time were facing. And Paul feared that despite his teachings and his warnings that this would happen, they might give in to that pressure, their faith might waver, and the young Christian church could just be subsumed back into the contemporary culture. He's in agony at the thought of that. And so he explains his actions in verse Uh, chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 he says so when we could stand it no longer we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens we sent Timothy who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials then in verse 5 for this reason when I could stand it no longer I sent to find out about your faith I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. How do you make your pastor a happy man? Well, you live a life of faith. Whoops, I realise I just turned over two pages there. Excellent, good spot. Uh, You live a life of faith. You send him good news about your faith. You let him know by the example of your life that the truths that you've received are actually influencing and determining the way that you live. Now, obviously, that's a massive challenge. I'm not going to go into it too much, but it's a massive challenge. I think, on the whole, that we're a fairly well-taught bunch, either from preaching here or at previous churches or books or, or wherever. We know a lot of truths from the Bible. But naturally, there's areas in our lives where we don't necessarily put that into action, individually or as a church. An example, if I believe that uh, that at the cross Jesus freed me from the burden of my sins and promised me heaven to come, and if I believe that as God Jesus can provide everything that I need now, then naturally it follows that everything I have now is best used, dedicated to him. But in practice, I set aside much less of my income than I initially earmarked for giving maybe through laziness or or disorganisation or maybe disinclination, I don't let that faith always get into action. As a church, we believe in serving each other and working together as the body of Christ. But isn't it easy 
sometimes just to take the excuse of being a bit busy, quite tired, or having family to worry about, or a hundred other things, so that when simple jobs need doing, they get left to the same crowd of volunteers. Maybe a challenge for us is to think, where in our lives do we hold back from putting our faith into action? Where in our lives do we need to improve on lukewarmness if we care about being pleasing, not only to our pastors, but to Jesus when he comes? There is one crucial sign which, which I want to talk about, which is the one that Paul mentions here. It's really easy to spot, the sign that uh, faith is active, uh, because it shines out in this passage. It's the importance of love. And actually what we see is Paul's genuine, deep love and concern for the Thessalonian church. It's completely unmissable. And he's writing about it because he considers it to be the crucial sign of active faith. How do you make your pastor a happy man? You live a life of faith and you demonstrate it with a life of love. And it's worth picking out some characteristics of the love that Paul shows. Now, first of all, if you look at verse 17, his love is intimate. He considers them family. He calls them brothers. He doesn't love them in some kind of abstract way from afar, a sort of theoretical love. It's close. Now, I don't know about you, but like, like Emily was saying, that rang true. As Brits, we're not a very touchy-feely bunch. Now, perhaps we're a bit uncomfortable with that. We shy clear of that kind of language, brother, sister, unless we're using it a little bit ironically. But not Paul. He's not ashamed at all of the depth of his love for this church. Later in verse 17, he describes the separation as being torn away from them. The language carries the connotations of violent orphans, like a parent orphaned from their child, or a brother torn away from his family. He's genuinely pained by being absent from them. He's got such longing to see them that he's really making huge efforts to get around the obstacles in his way, to reach his loved ones. Now, just by comparison, since school and university days, I've got friends all over this country who I don't see very often. And that's sad, it's a shame. But if I'm honest, with only a little bit of effort, I could be in contact with them by phone and email regularly. I could use a weekend or some of my stupid teacher holidays to, to see them once a year at least. But I don't. Maybe I, maybe I just don't care about them enough. But Paul, he really loves this church. So much of he struggles to see them, despite the barriers in his way. Despite, as he puts it, Satan stopping him. He'll accept inconvenience for them. He'll go without his friend and his supporter, Timothy, for a while. Even though he doesn't like that, he finds that hard. He'll go without them so that he can find out how they're doing. Make sure they get the encouragement that they need. He has an intimate, close love for them. Secondly, his love is concerned. What I mean by that is that Paul doesn't just focus on the positives. He doesn't simply have a, a, a matey friendship with them. He doesn't just like to spend time with the Thessalonians. He doesn't just get on well with them. Uh, he's not just polite on Sunday mornings. And if he meets them in the street, exchanges some pleasantries and asks how the week's going. No, he's got a real concern for their welfare. He's terrified that they would be confused by the suffering and opposition they encounter or by the persecutions they see him get. In verse 5, he's terrified that in some way they would have been tempted 
or led off track. And so because he's actually concerned for them, his love is active, he's prepared to act on it. Third point, his love is prayerful and it's thankful. It's shown repeatedly in this letter, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 3, 9 and 10. Paul is constantly thanking God for the Thessalonians, for the amazing work that God has done there. And Paul is consistently living them up to God, living, lifting them up to God, and asking him for their protection and growth. He's devoted to them in prayer and thanksgiving. Finally, the reason that he loves them like this is because his love is informed by heaven. The reason he's so passionate about this church, that he cares so deeply for them, is that he knows their value in eternity. Look at chapter 2, verse 19 again. I love this verse. He says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Paul doesn't love them simply because of who they are. He he doesn't love them because of the things that they do or because they look nice. He loves this church because they're part of the eternal inheritance and glory of Jesus in heaven. Isn't that amazing? That's not just an incentive for Paul because he's their spiritual father. I mean, to some extent it is, because there is a specific reward for him in that. But it's not just an incentive for evangelists with regards to those that they've led to Jesus. It's an incentive for any Christian, because Jesus has promised us that we will share heaven with him and all of the church forever. It's a glorious promise. So it makes sense that we should love that church now. A friend of mine at university once told another friend of his, and I love this statement, but I think it's wrong. He said, I've got eternity in heaven to spend with you, Wycroft. I might as well avoid you while I can. I've wanted to use that myself several times. Uh, But Paul's saying exactly the opposite. He's saying, I've got eternity in heaven to spend with you. I don't want anything to jeopardise our inheritance now. His love is informed and driven by heaven. And so because of that, Paul loves his church passionately, actively. And the reason he's taking all this time to show them how he feels is because that's what he's looking for in them as well. It's the most important, most convincing sign of Christian faith that he could get. Look at chapter 3, verse 6 again. Timothy's brought back good news about the church's faith. They're well grounded. They're not losing sight of the wonderful gospel they've received. But more than that, Timothy has brought back good news about your faith and love. Literally, Timothy's brought back a gospel to us. That's how he feels. It's like the good news of Jesus to him. And he's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Paul's ecstatic here. Because what he's heard from Timothy confirms that this is a church that's truly received God's word, that's truly responded to it. They're showing that hallmark of Christian living. Lives where repentance and understanding of their salvation, how it's been achieved, where knowledge of their hope in heaven and openness to God's word and to the Holy Spirit, lives where all of that is resulting not just in good living, moral living, but in active, genuine love for each other and for those around them. They follow that instruction that he gives to so many other churches. He says, 
Uh, Romans 13, 9 and 10, he says, Love your neighbour as yourself. Love is the fulfilment of the law. Colossians 3, verse 14, he says, Over all these virtues put on love. Galatians 5, verse 6, he says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Not the law of Galatians, not circumcision, just love. The Thessalonians are doing that, and that is why Paul's pleased. That's what's made them a happy man. It's what he wants them to carry on doing. Look at this prayer in verses 10 to 12. It's great. Uh, he says, uh, where are we? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Their love isn't a sort of dry, binary thing that you've got or you don't have. It's this organic, growing love. It's like a vine with its roots in their hearts, with, with what Jesus has accomplished there, growing out into their lives, bearing fruit in the world around them. Who wants that love to grow, to, to spread, to be more fruitful and stronger? Because essentially that is what a Christian church should look like. So, um, what about us? How do we fit with that? Well, I think we are a loving church. When I first joined this place uh, a while ago, it was one of the things that attracted me. How quickly when I came in, I was, I was welcomed, I was asked after, I was settled in, I was made part of a house group. I think we are a loving church. But, of course, there's room for growth. We should be dedicated to continuing to grow as a loving church. Let's strive for that intimacy and closeness. It's a struggle, especially if you're, you're an antisocial physicist type like me. Uh, it goes against the grain, I'll be honest. But isn't it brilliant and encouraging when you're chatting to someone in church, or outside church, from church, yeah. Uh, when you're chatting to someone in church and you, you feel free and able to talk about the, the stuff which actually you are really struggling with or the stuff which is really genuinely encouraging you. Isn't it amazing when people are concerned enough about each other that they remember what's going on, they remember what you've been talking about and next time they see each other, two, three weeks later, they ask about it. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't it fantastic when people love each other enough, concerned enough for each other, they're prepared to help out, even in simple, menial, practical things, to serve each other when needed? It's fantastic. So let's be committed to that kind of ready, close love. How good are we about loving the whole church? I've been here um, three and a half years, long time to me, but in reality a fairly short time. I'm beginning to get to know people. I'm aware, though, that my, my friendship group here is very much dominated by those in a similar stage of life to me. Now, that, that's natural. It's okay. But it, isn't it worthwhile as well to use opportunities we get, like house groups or the church day away, the church lunches or whatever, to get to know people from beyond our own immediate social group? After all, we are not several different churches which just coincide here. We're, we're not one student church, one 20s to 30s, one uh, families with children to worry about, one of the tops. No, we're, we're one body in Christ. So maybe we sometimes can afford to be a bit more conscious about increasing the range of people that we mix with. 
Yeah, perhaps for the, the bunch of us who head out for lunch after Sunday morning services, perhaps we need to, to be a bit more conscious about continuing to think about how to make that accessible and not horribly expensive for families. Maybe sometimes planning it in advance that it doesn't mean abandoning other plans if someone else wants to come along. Or maybe on the other hand, you're someone who cooks a mean meal, a good Sunday roast. Brilliant. Well, it's really appreciated on many levels when you invite people to join you. It's a wonderful way to get to know people in different parts of the church, especially for students and younger people to get to know and appreciate some of the older and arguably wiser members of the church, and vice versa. Let's strive to love the whole church. Let's aim to be an openly prayerful and thankful community. I'm appalling at this. I've got this awful record of prayer diaries. They last about a week and then they're gone. But I've found it so encouraging when people have phoned me up or emailed me and said, hey, I've been praying for you about the youth group or about this sermon or about something else. Let's give each other that encouragement and that support. Especially, you know, as, as we've got people heading off to university and other things, let's be diligent in prayer for them. Let's use the tools like ePray and, and like house groups to keep each other updated, to give fuel and food for that, for that prayer and that thanksgiving. You see, we need to be like this. We need to be a community of love. Because it's the proper response to the faith that we claim, to the love that Jesus has shown us. We need to be like this, because just like the Thessalonians, we're going to face times of confusion and discouragement and suffering. And the love of a church community is something that will help us carry through that. We need to be like this because we've got a responsibility to take the gospel to others. But in whatever events or methods we plan, very little will ever be as attractive or as effective in commending our message as the love and respect with which we treat people. Because that is our reflection of Jesus' character. Of course, we need to be like this, because this is the criteria which Jesus has set out. It's the fruit of the gospel, loving Christianity. It's how we bring glory to his name. It's what he's going to be looking for when he returns, not lukewarmness or half-heartedness to each other. As Paul puts in chapter 3, verse 13, this is our way of being blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So, how do you make the pastor a happy man? You, you send him good news about your faith and love. I think the tricky thing, though, is to think, how do you get there? Dan reminded us of that at the beginning of the series. Didn't he? He said, if we go away from here thinking, huh, I must have more faith, or I must be more loving, we want to hide him from nothing. We fail that challenge every time. The Thessalonians didn't impress Paul because they happened to be nice guys or because they were naturally loving people. They certainly didn't manage it simply because they wanted to please him, not even because they wanted to please Jesus. Now, the Thessalonian church will have lived reformed Christian lives because, according to chapter 2, verse 13, they received the message about Jesus as the word of God. They believed it and they continued to depend on it. If we're going to go away from here and, and continue or, or begin to live 
reform Christian lives, then we need to do the same. We'll need to look to the cross where our sins were punished in Jesus instead of us. We need to look to the resurrection where he guaranteed his promises of heaven to come. And we need to depend on him and on that day by day. Each week as we come here, we need to ask him to teach us. We need to depend on his spirit to change us and grow us into those faithful, loving Christians we want to be. Essentially, we'll need to put ourselves into that glorious position of weakness that Dan explained, where we acknowledge that nothing we do will be sufficient, but instead depend with absolute certainty on the God who can provide everything we need. That's how we're going to get this faith and love. Uh, That's how we'll end up making our pastors happy, if we manage it.